Everyone else, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We've been working through Hebrews for a while now. We are now in Hebrews chapter 4, and this morning I'll be reading Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 13. I invite you to hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if this morning you enjoyed your, your extra hour. Was it an extra hour of sleep? Was it wasted because you thought, oh, I get an extra hour, so you put on a two-hour movie late at night. Not that I would ever do that. And then end up losing an hour. Why, why is that one little hour something we get worked up over and excited about when we gain an hour? and yet so discouraged in March when we lose an hour. I would suggest it's because we sense the need for and the value of rest, even if it's just one little hour of rest. And that's the idea that the author of Hebrews is calling us to think about today. Now, for a reminder for those who've been with us and forgotten or uh, to catch you up to speed with those who haven't been with us the past uh, month or so as we've been in Hebrews, uh, this book, Hebrews, was written to Christians in the first century in the decades after Jesus rose from the dead, Christians who were struggling to hang in there. Because as formerly Jewish people who are now followers of Jesus, they were experiencing persecution. They were losing uh, their jobs. They were losing family. They were losing community. They were losing freedom. They were losing their lives. And many of them were on the verge of saying, and some had already said, it's not worth it. And they were giving up and they were going back to the way of life they'd known before, which was culturally more acceptable, uh, socially more acceptable. It was easier all around. And the author of Hebrews is writing to, to challenge them and to encourage them and to warn them to say, no, don't give up. This is the only way that works. And anything else you could look to doesn't compare to Jesus. And it, 
he goes back, and we saw in the last chapter last week, how he's, he pulls from the history of God's people, the, the history of the Jews. He's looking at the time when, having left Egypt and passed through the Red Sea, they failed to enter the Promised Land because they did not believe the promises of God. And they ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years, testing God again and again, and being tested by God. And God, uh, in, in Psalm 95, written hundreds of years later by David, God calls that event to mind and said, I was angry with them and I swore that because of their unbelief, they wouldn't enter my rest. They hardened their hearts to my word, to my promise, to what they'd seen me do, and I therefore did not give them rest. And David in Psalm 95 is writing to the people of his day, hundreds of years later, and the author of Hebrews, a thousand years after that, after David, is writing to warn the people of his day, and I speak today to warn you as well, that the same situation applies. That we can be in danger of not trusting God and therefore refusing to believe his promise and therefore not entering his rest. In, for the people of God in the wilderness, the promise of God's rest was entering the promised land. For Christians in Rome in the first century, it meant relief, rescue from their struggle and from persecution, entrance into the fullness of God's great promises. And that is what we look forward to as well today. Rest for us can mean a lot of different things, but the rest we're called to is what God has designed us to enjoy. Now, we, we don't want to be, as, as some have said, so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. We don't want to practice a faith that is obsessed with the sweet by and by and apple pie in the sky and everything's going to be better someday and, and have no bearing on our day-to-day -day life. We want a faith that is practical. A faith that makes a difference, that, that shows us how to live and that gives us community. However, that earthly blessing and the earthly benefits of our faith are not enough. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only then we are of all people most to be pitied. If in our practice of the Christian faith, if we do not have set before our heart and our vision the rest, the promise that God provides, then we are pathetic, Paul says. That is an indispensable part of the Christian life. And so we see in these verses, which are primarily a warning, that God promises us lasting rest and we receive that rest only as we persevere in obeying his word so let's first look at this rest that we are called to what is the rest that we are called to there's two important things we see in these verses about it first in verse 9 the author says there remains a sabbath rest for the people of god it means it's still ahead of us we're not in it yet it's not behind us. It's not now. There still remains a rest that we're moving towards. And then in verse 1, he says the promise of entering God's rest still stands. So that's two important things. The rest is still ahead of us, and we are invited, called, urged now to move towards that, to strive towards it, that we might enter that rest. Something that we do here, the way we live here, impacts our entrance into God's rest. Now, the idea of entering God's rest is not something new. It goes all the way back to the time of creation. 
And the author of Hebrews is trying to unravel what is this rest that God is talking about in Psalm 95, swearing that they would never enter His rest, urging us to strive towards the rest. And so the author of Hebrews goes back to Genesis. In verses 3 and 4, he says, God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. For He has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all His works. And the the Jewish scholars had noticed that in the creation account, with each day of creation, it says there was evening and morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the second day. There was evening and morning the third day, and so on. But when it gets to the seventh day, they had noticed that in the Genesis account, it doesn't say that there was evening and morning the seventh day. No, the seventh day continues. As God completes His creation, He enters into a time of rest. And they believe that that we are in that time of rest. But the author of Hebrews is saying, be that as it may, that's not the rest that God is talking about here. And how do we know that? We know that because of verse 6. If we were in that rest, then we couldn't say that some people failed to enter it. Therefore, it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it. Because of their disobedience. So he says, look, God rested on the seventh day. And we all live in that time after creation. It's not a matter of needing to enter the creation rest of God. We're there. So that can't be the rest that we're called to. But then there's another rest mentioned. The rest that was promised to Israel when they left Egypt, wandered in the wilderness, and approached the promised land. God said he would lead them to rest in the promised land. And eventually, the nation of Israel, God's people, made it to the promised land. But that, the author of Hebrews says, that's not the rest he's talking about either. In verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest when he led them into the promised land, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Because it was was 500 years later that David wrote Psalm 95 saying that we need to not harden our hearts because we don't want to be excluded from the rest of God. So it can't be the promised land. It can't be the rest of creation. And the truth is that God has given his people many different glimpses of the rest that we're all moving towards. The seventh day of creation when God rested from his works. The Sabbath rest that we are all called to one day in seven to lay aside our labors and to rest before God. God gave special festivals and feasts to His people, times when they were to set their work aside and celebrate and rest. The arriving in the promised land was a glimpse of rest. The prophets who prophesied deliverance, who said that that there will come a time when everyone will sit under his own vine and own fig tree and they will all be at rest on the mountain of the Lord. We saw that in our call to worship this morning, beating their swords into plowshares and, and their spears into pruning hooks. That is a time of rest. The greatest example that God gave his people was the year of Jubilee. In addition to resting one day in seven, he also called them to rest one year in seven called the Sabbath year, when you you didn't plant, you didn't harvest, you just ate what grew in the fields and God provided enough. But every seven Sabbath years, so every 49 years, would be followed by a year of Jubilee. And amazing things happened in the year of Jubilee. Prisoners were free. Debts were canceled. If you'd lost your land, your family's land, it was restored to you. The land was given rest. 
People were not to work. It was a full year of celebration and rest. And it was a beautiful example of the rest God had in mind for his people. When, when their debts would be canceled, when prisoners to sin would be set free, when they would rest from their labors, when what is lost would be restored. God is giving people throughout the ages, giving his people times of rest, glimpses of the true rest that he has prepared for them. Every Sabbath, every holiday, every celebration was meant to remind them of the true rest that he had prepared for them. So what is that rest? What is this big thing that we're leading up to? Our impulse might be to look at verse 10. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. You might look at that and think, well, therefore, rest means not working. Rest is chilling out, just doing nothing. And and there's truth in that. But still that falls short of what God is talking about when he prescribes rest for his people. When God promised to bring the Israelites into the promised land, he said in Exodus 33, I will give you rest. And yet when they entered that promised land, did everybody just sit down on the couch and stop working for the rest of their lives? Was that rest? No, that, that wasn't the rest. They, they arrived at the promised land and they had to plant and cultivate and harvest and build homes. They still did stuff. The rest that God gave them was not a lack of labor. It was something else. He describes it this way in 2 Samuel 7. God says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. How is God describing the rest that he promised his people? It is deliverance. It is peace. When we picture the rest of God, the rest that God gives us. It is not idleness. It is not laziness. It's not floating around on clouds and strumming harps. That is is the skim milk and Splenda version of the land of milk and honey. When we think of rest, we're not to think of it as a time when we are doing nothing. In God's mind, in God's kingdom, rest is when we are at peace. It's like the arrest of the, the rest of arriving on vacation. When I go on vacation with my extended family, it's, it's a long drive to get there. Kids are restless. We're tired. We get there. We arrive at the vacation home where all the extended family is staying together. And then we start doing stuff. We get there and we start setting up the bedding. And we go out and, and buy groceries and start making food. And we make sure the water is, you know, the kids are protected from falling into the water. And we, we do all this stuff and we're busy, busy. We're doing, doing, doing. But it is a joy. It is a delight. It is stuff that refreshes us. It is joyful, restful work. God doesn't promise us idleness. He promises us joyful, lasting peace. Refreshing busyness, which is something that the Sabbath and the promised land could only imitate for God's people, could not truly give them. Just as even now, resting one day a week doesn't lead us to peace. 
Sure, I, you can go home, you can sit on the couch, you can do nothing all day, and then find that your heart is not at rest because you're thinking about what you got to do tomorrow, right? Or, or you're worried, or you're nervous, or you're anxious. Peace still eludes you while you're doing nothing. For the, letters, uh, for the audience of this letter, they needed to hear that what God is promising them is relief from their enemies and their struggle. And as we examine our own hearts, that's what we want too. What God promises you and calls you to, the rest that we are called to, is a peace that surpasses understanding. It is a peace unlike anything you've ever experienced. Tell me if this sounds good. To never feel insecure again. Amen? To never feel anxious again. Amen? To never feel inadequate again. To never feel alone again. To never feel out of place again. To never need to struggle to make ends meet. To never fear the next job report or market report or housing downturn. To never fear who might or might not win the next election. To never worry that everything you've built your life on is going to crumble from underneath you or prove to be just a waste of time. Does that sound good? Does that sound like peace? That is the peace that God calls you to. That is rest. And to be honest, all of that is available to us now in Christ. We can find all of that peace and that true rest as we trust in Jesus. However, our hearts, shaped and trained by sin over the years, still rebel against that promise of rest. And so the promise is of a day when not only are we seeing that peace is available to us, but peace is enforced upon us. The tendency of our heart to rebel against God's rest, to reject it, that is removed from us. And we experience the true rest of God. That, brothers and sisters, is the rest that we are called to. The next question is, how do we find that rest? How is it made available to us? You know, as we saw in the last point, the, the rest that we're called to is the same thing that God's people have always looked forward to throughout generations. The hints of it, the signs of it may change, but the promise of rest is still the same. So it should be no surprise that we find that rest in the same way that God's people have always found it, and that is by the promise of God. And so in these verses, we not only see the rest that we're called to, but we also see the word that calls us. The word that calls us to rest. In verse 2, speaking of the Israelites in the desert, the author says, Good news came to us just as to them, just as to the Israelites in the desert. The Israelites in the wilderness received good news, which, as many of you know, is the same word as gospel. And in the original Greek, it is the same word. Verse 2 literally reads, the gospel was preached to them just as it was to us. The word gospel means good news, which is what we call it when God promises to save and bless his people. That is good news. That is gospel. We might think, when we hear the word gospel, we might think of the good news of Jesus dying in our place so we can be forgiven of our sins. And that is true. That is the gospel of Jesus. But the gospel itself in Scripture is 
way bigger than that. In Galatians 3, Paul writes, The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham. And here was the gospel message to Abraham. In you shall all the nations be blessed. That, that's no mention of Christ on the cross. No mention of dying in, for forgiveness of sins. The gospel message is the nations will be blessed through you, Abraham. Or in Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, literally who preaches gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, here's the gospel message, your God reigns. Your God reigns. The gospel is the declaration of God's salvation. In Abraham, that meant that God would one day bless all the nations through a child of Abraham, Jesus. In Isaiah, it meant that God would be victorious over his enemies and his people Israel would be able to say, our God wins, he reigns, he rules over the nations. In Genesis, the gospel message meant that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head in victory and sin would be defeated. In the wilderness, the gospel meant that God would lead his people to rest, delivering them from their enemies and providing for them lasting peace. These are not four, five, six different gospels. These are one gospel message, one promise of salvation declared in different ways at different times. But one gospel that is fulfilled in Jesus because God's word is not just for people a long time ago. It is the truth at all times for all people, including for us today. And so the gospel that comes to us today is the same message, only more clear and more urgent. The same message that was heard in the wilderness outside the promised land. And that's why the author of Hebrews says in verse 12, the word of God is living and active. God's word and the promise of the gospel is not some musty old message that doesn't apply to us. It is alive and active today, speaking to the needs of your heart, addressing the circumstances of your life. That's why verse 12 goes on to say that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The picture here is of the sharpest thing you can imagine, able to divide things that can't actually be separated, able to pierce your thoughts, revealing and unveiling your motivations, your desires, your intentions. And that, that might sound like a threat, I know. And for those who reject that word, it should be a threat. Because what it says is you can't pretend. You can pretend before this crowd of people. You can pretend before me. You can pretend before your family, but God is not fooled. His word uncovers your motivation, your desires, your very thoughts, and knows if you are obedient or not, regardless of how you seem on the outside. But to the child of God, consider this. It is no threat. If the word of God is so piercing and so powerful that it, that it pierces your very thoughts and motivations, that is a blessing. Because that means that God searches your heart and reveals what it is you actually desire. And that the word of God calls you not away from satisfaction, not away from peace, not away from rest. The word calls you to experience what it is you're truly desiring. 
That which you're seeking in everything else, where you're pursuing in every other dream that occupies you, the Word is calling you to that because the Word of God is living and active, unveiling what's in your very thoughts. It's like when my kids um, get a, uh, a gift card for birthdays, holidays, whatever, and they want to spend that gift card. They've got to use my Amazon account or I've got to take them to Target or wherever. I've got to be there when they spend it. And I see what they want to spend it on. And I really want to persuade them to spend it on something else. Okay, because they, they want this so bad. They've never wanted anything so bad in their life. I didn't even know it existed until 10 minutes ago. And now it's all I've ever wanted. Look at it. It's, it's so shiny. And I'm looking at it and I know my child. And I know their heart. And I know what they love. And I know what's going to happen to that thing in 25 minutes when it breaks. And so I say, hey, but, but wouldn't you rather have this? Trust me. Trust me, I know what you really want. And you're not going to be happy with this. You'd be more happy with this. Because I know my child's heart. And I'm calling, what I'm calling them to is not, I don't want you to have the thing that you love. It's, I want you to be really satisfied. And that's what God, God's word calls us to. In Isaiah 55, it, it puts it beautifully. God says, come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, he who has no money. Come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you spend your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Listen to the word of God and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Don't settle for this. Look what the word calls you to. The word of God that, that pierces your heart and knows you calls you to true peace, true rest, true satisfaction. Lastly, we see that it's not enough to hear that word calling us to rest. Verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Those who hear the calling of the word to rest must respond to that word. And so having seen the rest that we're called to, having seen the word that calls us, we now see the work of our calling. The work of our calling. What must we do to respond to this word that promises us rest? Chapter 4 begins with a warning. Verses 1 and 2 says, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That is a fascinating line at the end there. Fascinating. It didn't say that the message that they heard didn't benefit them because they didn't have faith. It says the message they heard didn't benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They didn't join in the faith of those who listened and obeyed and responded. There is a community of people who believe and obey God's word, just as at the edge of the promised land, there were two spies saying, we've heard the promises of God. This is what they mean. Let's do it. And the community of Israel did not join their hearts in that faith. And they were excluded from the promise. 
Hearing God's promise to us, His promise of rest, demands that we join ourselves to the community of those who hear and listen to and obey that promise. It's not just upon us that we believe the promise. We have to stand with, join with, be a part of those who believe and live out that belief with them. So with that warning in mind, the author zeroes in on this one word from Psalm 95, the word today. Verse 7. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The author makes the conclusion that when David says today, he doesn't mean that specific day when David was writing the psalm. He doesn't mean the day when that person was reading it. He means now. He means this time, this day, when you hear the call and have the opportunity to respond. When Israel was given the promise of God to enter the promised land, that God would destroy the, the, the barriers in front of them and lead them in, it was a limited time offer to hear and respond. And once they reached the promised land and did not believe, they failed to enter. Likewise, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, working together with God, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't hear the promise in vain. For God says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. It's not an indefinite offer. But now is the time when, when there's the opportunity to hear and respond and receive the rest of God. This is, incidentally, another answer to the question of why God waits. We talked last week about how the journey can be long. And one of the reasons for the long journey is that God tests us. Another answer to that, why we have to wait, why God doesn't give us the rest now, why He doesn't bring His kingdom right now, why we've got to put up with this waiting. The reason is, the message is still out there. And not all of God's children have made their way safely home. The time of rest is not here, not because God is lazy or forgetful or negligent. The time of rest is not yet here because God is gracious and He's giving time for people to listen and respond. But what does it mean to listen in these verses? How do we respond to the word that calls us to rest the passage says pretty clearly, verse 6, those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Verse 11 says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. But what does disobedience look like? The end of our passage last week, chapter 3, verse 19, said it this way. We just saw that they were unable to enter because of disobedience, but he just said they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And chapter 4, verse 3 says, we who have believed enter that rest. The obedience God requires is belief. It's not adherence to a list of rules. It's not subscription to a set of doc doctrines. It is belief. Which is what Jesus says in John chapter 6. The crowds, having just been fed, feeding the 5,000, Jesus says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, 
which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now hearing Jesus say, work for this, work for this, they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What's the work that we've got to do, Jesus? And he answered them, this is the work of God. The work, singular, is that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work of God, the obedience he requires, is belief. Believing in Jesus. But hang on. Because believing is not cognitive in Scripture. Believing is not just, I, I agree that that's true. It's not just what you think. If you believe something is true, you will live as if it's true. If we believe God, then we'll obey His Word. And you can choose whatever adventure archaeology movie series you like. I'm, I'm partial to Indiana Jones, the three, only three movies that were ever made but Indiana Jones, fourth one never happened. You know, Indiana Jones is always trying to find something, and he's usually got a, uh, a map or a journal or a series of clues, some set of directions to get in there, and he believes that it will get him where he needs to go. How do we know he believes? Because he doesn't give up. He keeps going and doing what the little book or map or instructions tell him, even if he has to go through a pit of snakes or an army of Nazis or a series of deadly traps, whatever it is, because he believes it, he keeps going. And that's the message that we have here. Let us strive. Let us keep going. Let us not give up if we really believe the Word of God. Believing in Scripture is what you live, what you do, based on what you think is true. That's why here at Treasure Coast Presbyterian, we talk all the time, all the time about living out the gospel. Together. The gospel is not just something we agree with and think is nice. It's something we live, express in how we live. The Israelites in the desert, the Christians in Rome, and us today, it is all the same. If we believe the promise of rest, there's a way that we have to live in response. And so in Revelation 14, John encourages the churches with these words. Here is a call for the endurance Hanging in there, keep going. The endurance of the saints. What does endurance look like? Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And what does endurance through obedience result in? I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds. Follow them. Don't hear me wrong, though. The, the truth of Scripture that I've just shared, which is believing means doing, and we must persevere in obedience to receive what God has promised. That is true, but that can also sound like we earn the reward of God's rest if we make it across the finish line. Hey, if you, if you clean your room, get an ice cream. If you sit quiet through the whole church service, we'll go out to Culver's after and we never talk about stuff like that at my house, right? I want to make sure no one leaves here with that thought in their head that perseverance, believing obedience, gets rewarded with the rest of God. To dispel that notion, I want to look briefly at what we are called to believe. What is it that we're called to believe and therefore live out? It's the gospel, the good news, the grace of God, believing that nothing you have done or ever will do earns you God's approval, his affection, or his acceptance. 
It means that your place in God's rest, when you receive a welcome into the promised land, when on, from Jordan's stormy banks you enter into Canaan, when, when that happens, it is going to be because of grace beginning to end that God called you in grace, He saved you in grace because Jesus took your place on the cross. He kept you faithful by grace, and in the end, you are victorious because of grace. We believe that because of the grace of God, several big things are different in the way we live. I want to list three of them real quick. Number one, if God saves you by grace and you persevere in believing that, then you are secure. You do not need to seek approval, affection, or acceptance from other sources, from your looks, from your success, from whatever it is that you're searching for. You are loved by grace and you don't need to sell your heart in search of what God has already given you. That's one way that we live out our belief in the gospel. The other is, number two, if God saves you by grace and if you believe that, then you don't treat others according to a standard of performance. Your love, your kindness, your blessing to others is not something they have to earn or deserve. But it is something that you give just as freely as we saw in Colossians in our assurance of pardon. Forgiving as Christ forgave you. And lastly, thirdly, if God saves you by grace and you really believe that, then there is no power in the world that can undo what He has done. No political power can improve or threaten God's promise of rest for His people. No personal tragedy, no personal failure, nothing can shake God's promise of rest for you because it is a promise that comes from the Word of the Lord and that makes you secure. And therefore you live secure. You don't live in fear. You don't live in awe of other powers. You don't live in fear of what else might come between you and God because nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we believe that because every word of the Lord is true. Christian, living out the gospel, responding to the good news means living as if every word of the Lord is true. Let us pray that we live with that confidence until the day when we rest from our labors in the way that He has promised us. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the promise of rest, which is not only encouraging to our hearts, but which leads us in our path of obedience in the days to come. We pray that we would not give up, but that we would persevere in our obedience because of the grace that saved us. A grace that makes our obedience possible. A obedience that is the fruit of the new life you've given us that cannot be taken away. May we persevere and not give up, not waver, not fail. And let us encourage one another in that. We pray this. According to the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.